We're glad you're here this morning at Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be with us and worship with us. Last week, we started a new sermon series called Tough Questions. And the first question that we addressed of the sermon series was, can there really be only one true religion? Can there really be only one true religion? And for Christians, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. The Bible presents one God who created everything. No other God did. The Bible presents one God who deserves the worship and allegiance of every single human being. The Bible presents one God who is not willing to share his well-deserved honor, his well-deserved glory with any other false gods. And the Bible presents one God who provided one Lord and Savior for the sins of man. That Lord and Savior is his son, Jesus. So to answer the question, yes, Christians really do believe that there is only one true God. We really do believe there is only one true faith. We really do believe that not all faiths are equal and not all faiths are true. Now, that does not mean that there aren't moral and kind and intelligent people of other faiths who make wonderful contributions to society that we can learn a whole lot from. That does not give Christians an excuse to be rude or violent towards people of other faiths under any circumstances whatsoever. However, at the same time, we as followers of Jesus cannot be afraid to affirm Jesus's own words about himself. That he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, considering we're talking about tough questions that our culture has about Christianity, imagine yourself proposing everything we just said to someone who is skeptical of the Christian faith. All that stuff about one God who deserves worship and honor, one Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ. You propose all that stuff to them. That skeptic might respond by saying, okay, sure, maybe the Bible really does teach all that stuff. Maybe it is clear. Maybe the church should take that stand on what they believe. But why trust the Bible? After all, isn't the Bible outdated? There are other religious texts that make the same claim about their respective religions. Is the Bible historically reliable? Do we even know for sure that we have access to the original text of the Bible? And if we're really honest about it, don't some of these questions just kind of sound like fairy tales? In other words, there's a second tough question that we need to talk about this morning. And that question is, can we really trust the Bible? Can we really trust the Bible? Open up to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. This will be found on page 855 of our chair Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we read 2 Timothy, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have access to the Bible, that we can read it, that we can learn from it. But God, also, people have questions about it. Is this something that we can really trust? Is this something that we should read? Is this something that we should look to learn from? God, I pray that 
we would ask that question and think about that question this morning honestly and openly and humbly. I pray that we would find the truth, the true answer to that question. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, that's a great passage. Great verses. Lots of Christians have those verses engraved on their coffee mugs or embroidered on their Bible covers or written on sticky notes that are on their computer screens. It's a really great verse. In fact, those verses are so great that when we encounter someone who doesn't believe the Bible can be trusted, we as Christians are tempted to open our Bibles, turn to that passage, read it, and declare with utter certainty, there, that settles it. The Bible says that it is breathed by God. You can trust it. I trust it. Are you ready to be baptized now? But is it really that easy? Is it really that easy to answer the question of can we really trust the Bible? The skeptic would likely respond, okay, uh, thanks for that, I guess. But how can you trust that? You know, that's part of the Bible, too. That's the equivalent of going to a friend and telling them, of course, you can trust the mechanic I use. He does good work. He does it in a timely manner. He's not going to overcharge you. And the friend would ask, OK, well, that's all good to hear. But why are you so confident? How do you know that I can trust them? How do I know that I can take my car there? And then you respond, well, the mechanic told me so. He told me I can trust him. He told me that I do, that he does good work. He told me that he'll get it done in a timely manner. The friend might respond, well, I probably need more than just that. I probably need some kind of reviews to make sure that this mechanic really is trustworthy. Because sometimes if you only go for someone's word about themselves, they might not be totally honest. The point is this. We can't argue for the Bible, from the Bible, with someone who doesn't trust the Bible. We can't argue for the Bible, from the Bible, with someone who doesn't trust the Bible. Now, we as followers of Jesus would look at that, and some of us might be tempted to think, well, what do we do with that? I mean, after all, this is kind of the core of what we believe. This is kind of the core of what we teach. If I don't have access to this when I'm talking to someone about my faith, then what do I really have? Can the conversation really even continue? It kind of seems like we're at a little bit of a crossroads and there's nowhere else to go from here. But when we encounter someone who doesn't trust the Bible, we as followers of Jesus have to come at the questions a little bit differently. We have to be a little bit more creative in explaining why we really do believe the Bible can be trusted. A few thoughts on that. Number one, we can use historical reasoning to defend the Bible. Those questions include questions like, well, does the Bible stand up to historical scrutiny? Can we really trust the text of the Bible as a reliable record of events? 
Well, there's a few things to consider along those lines. Consider the timing of when the Bible was written. For example, all the New Testament was written within 70 years at most of Jesus' death. 70 years at most. And when examining past events, historians will place great value on written records that date close to the time that an event actually occurred. Because after all, we all know that memories fade. Imagine you're walking out of the building this morning and you see something absolutely incredible. You literally see a pig flying. So you see a pig flying. You cannot believe your eyes. It's so unbelievable that you go home and you open your journal because, of course, all of us still write in journals, right? You open your journal and you write about it. You have an entry and you talk about the pig that you saw flying. You include every single detail that you can possibly remember because this event was absolutely so mind-blowing. Well, imagine if you saw that same event this morning, but you waited five years to write about it. When you write it down five years later, there's probably details you're going to forget. You're probably not going to be able to remember all the people that were there who saw that with you. You might not remember what the weather was like. You might not even remember which side of the building it happened on. The point is, the further away that we get away from an event, the more likely that we're going to forget something. The more likely that we could be tempted to exaggerate something about the event itself. And what we have in the New Testament are written records dating to no more than 70 years after the death of Jesus. And in the big scheme of history, 70 years is not very long at all. In addition, we also have fragments of the New Testament that date back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Again, very close to the time of the events themselves. Not only are these fragments written very soon after Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave, there are lots of these fragments. They're written by different authors, different perspectives. That's very important, too. It's not just one guy making some stuff up. Lots of people write about this. But on top of that, there are Jewish and Roman authors, people who were not Christians who recorded in their own writings details about some events in the New Testament. There are Jewish writers who write about some guy named Christ, who was in Jerusalem around some time a few years ago and was causing some problems. There were people who had no skin in the game, people who had no agenda to make stuff up about Jesus, and yet they write things that corroborate pretty well with much of what we read in the New Testament. Timing is important. Another thing to consider are eyewitnesses. Think about it. If something happens in downtown Indianapolis and all the news channels are getting in their vans and driving down there to try and report on the event, one of the first things they're going to do is they're going to try to find people who saw what happened firsthand. They're not going to interview people who kind of heard it from a distance, but couldn't really see everything. They're not going to interview someone who got a call from a friend who said something happened. They're going to interview people who saw it with their own eyes. Now, Luke himself was not an eyewitness to Jesus. The author of 
Luke's gospel, but he interviewed those who were in order to write parts of his gospel. Now, Luke took that very seriously, the recording of eyewitnesses and the writing of his gospel. We see that in Luke chapter one, verses three and four. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It seems as though a man named Theophilus is commissioning Luke to go do some investigative work and find out, is all this stuff really true? Can I really believe all these things that I'm reading and hearing about Jesus? And Luke does not take that responsibility lightly. We see that in the way that he writes the gospel. For example, Luke includes eyewitnesses like Joanna in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. He mentions that she is the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager. So Luke gives Joanna's name. He even mentions her husband's name. He goes so far as mentioning her profession, the position that she holds in Herod's household. In Luke chapter 23, verse 26, he mentions of Simon of Cyrene, the man who helped Jesus carry the cross the day he was crucified. He names the man's name. He also gives the man's town. He does the same thing with Joseph of Arimathea in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Gives the name, gives the town. He even mentions that Joseph was part of the council, one of the religious leaders. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, another book that Luke wrote, he mentions that the disciples were all eyewitnesses to the ascension of Jesus. Now, for someone like Luke, who's writing very close to the time of Jesus, like we already mentioned, for him to include these people's names, their towns, their spouses, and even their professions. It's like Luke is looking at his original readers. He's looking at a man like Theophilus and saying, you know what? I dare you to go ask these people if all this stuff is true. Don't believe me? Go talk to Joanna. Don't believe me? Go talk to Simon. He lives in Cyrene. Talk to Joseph. He's on the council. It's not too hard to find him. He's practically daring people to go and find out if all this stuff is really true. It wouldn't have been hard for someone to find out that, wait a minute, there's nobody named Simon who's from Cyrene. There was never a guy named Joseph who was on the council around the time of Jesus's death. There was never anybody named Joanna who served in Herod's household. Luke is daring people to verify what he's writing. And if he was making up lies, it wouldn't have been hard to expose it. Paul also places very high value on eyewitnesses. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
Paul looks at the readers of his letter and says, I have seen Jesus. Jesus is alive. And if you don't believe me, go talk to nearly 500 people who will agree with me. Most of them are still alive. They can confirm that Jesus is alive. And they're readily available. It won't be hard to find people who say the truth about what happened to Jesus. So when you consider the timing, you consider the eyewitnesses that the authors named. If all of this stuff was untrue, the stuff they're writing about Jesus, it would not have been hard for people to expose it. And if all this stuff was just some kind of lie, it would have been very, very easy to stamp out the church, to stamp out the Christian faith before it ever got off the ground. Another thing to consider, historically speaking, is the content of the text. For example, again with the New Testament, if the New Testament authors were just making stuff up so they could gain a following or gain power or fame or wealth or influence, whatever their agenda might have been, they chose a strange way to go about it. After all, if you're trying to gain power, are you really going to tell people that You follow a Messiah who got crucified like a common crook? That doesn't really seem like a roadmap to success. If you're trying to gain a big following, are you going to tell of a Messiah who taught his followers to take up their cross, to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel? That's probably not going to gain much of a following. If you're trying to gain credibility for the stuff that you're just making up, are you going to talk about how females were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus? After all, in the ancient world, the testimony of a woman was not taken seriously. Is that really a good idea? If they're trying to gain wealth or influence or power or fame, are they going to record their own incompetence that we see in the Gospels? All the times when they didn't get it right, all the times when they had no clue what Jesus was trying to teach them. If they're trying to gain power or influence, are they going to make up a story about their Messiah telling people to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, to value serving above sitting back and being served? If the original New Testament authors were making all of this stuff up for their own glory, they sure chose a strange way to go about it. And last but not least, historically speaking, something to consider, the manuscripts of the biblical text. Now, these days, maybe not quite as common as it was five years ago or so, but questions would be asked that were brought up by books like the Da Vinci Code. How do we know the Bible hasn't been drastically changed or drastically edited over the years? Well, there have been discoveries there as well. Consider the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were scrolls found about 60 years ago that really serve to prove that the Old Testament you read today is very much in line with the Old Testament that existed even before Jesus. Consider the New Testament manuscripts that we already mentioned. We can be quite confident that what we read in our New Testaments today is what the early church read. 
It's what the New Testament authors meant to write. We can consider the canon of the biblical text. The canon is a fancy word for all 66 books of the Bible altogether. The first canon, all 66 books, was seen in 367 A.D. Now, that does show that the Bible didn't come together overnight. But if you ever do some historical research, the composition of the Bible wasn't quite as drawn out and controversial or dramatic as the Da Vinci Code would have you believe. Now, I know this is a lot to take in. It's a lot of information. It's like drinking from a fire hose. But all of that is to say that there are good reasons to take the Bible seriously, even if you're not a follower of Jesus. The text, especially the claims about Jesus, could have been easily refuted, and yet they weren't. It's not the content that you'd expect from people just making stuff up for their own agenda, for their own wealth or fame or glory or power. And we also have reason to believe that the text that we read today matches up very well with the earliest records that we've found. Okay, the skeptic might say, all right, that sounds good. That is certainly educational. That does give me something to think about. But is there anything else? Do we have any more reason or proof to believe that maybe there is something to this Bible after all? Well, if you like playing in the dirt, you could do some archaeology. Now, every Easter, which is ironically a great time to release documentaries about the Bible, that's when ratings are going to be really, really good for the History Channel. Every year around Easter, someone makes a new discovery that supposedly is going to rock Christianity to its core or scandalize everything you thought you knew about the Christian faith. But... Every single year, nearly every single one of those specials, those documentaries, these new discoveries, they turn out to be hoaxes. However, there are some legitimate archaeological discoveries that can address the question that we're wrestling with today. Can we really trust the Bible? You see the picture of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We already mentioned those. Arguably the most important archaeological discovery of the last 100 years. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21, Mark mentions the synagogue in Capernaum. Well, archaeologists believe they've found that. It really was a real place. The same can be said of Peter's home, found in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. There was the Pilate stone discovered that confirms Matthew 27, 2 and Luke chapter 3, verse 1, that Pilate really was the prefect of Judea. Around the time of Jesus, the authors weren't just making stuff up or making up names. The point is that the Bible has stood the test of time. Historical scrutiny, archaeological digs, they don't disprove the text of the Bible. In many cases, they actually reinforce a lot of what the Bible says. And while it's important for all of us to know this stuff as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to be somewhat educated about this kind of thing. In a world where so many people distrust the Bible, there's still a problem. The problem is that Christians believe something much bigger about the Bible than everything that we've talked about so far. 
You see, Christians don't just believe the Bible is a respectable and reliable and important historical document, even though it is all of those things. Christians believe something even bigger. Christians believe that this is the inspired word of God. Why would we say that? How can we lend any credibility to that assumption? Well, to be honest, we can look to our own experience. And while this may not carry the same scholarly weight of historical scrutiny or archaeological digs, we as followers of Jesus should not be ashamed to say that we believe the Bible is the word of God because we've experienced the impact that it's had on our lives. I have no doubt that there are many Christians in this room right now who have incredible stories about how the Bible has changed their hearts, how the word of God has changed their minds. We've seen things in our own life that make us affirm a passage like 2 Peter chapter 2, chapter 1 rather, verses 19 through 21. After Peter talks about all the stuff that he saw of Jesus, he writes, And we have something more sure. Something more sure. Don't believe my eyes. Believe something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, followers of Jesus don't just believe this is an important historical document. We believe that people wrote this book guided by the Holy Spirit. That God himself authored the Bible that we read. Because of the experiences we've had and the impact we've seen of the Word of God, we can affirm a verse like Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We can say that I believe the Bible is the word of God because I have felt the power of the Bible, both in the ways that it has lifted me up during my deepest moments of sadness and regret, and in the ways that it has convicted me of my own sin. In my own rebellion. We believe the Bible is the word of God, not because of historical evidence or archaeological discoveries, but because so many of us have seen the healing that the Bible has brought about to the hurting. We've seen the reconciliation that has brought about in relationships that seemed utterly beyond repair. We believe the Bible is the word of God because we've seen the transformation of our own hearts and our own minds and our own lives and the transformation of others when they finally understand that they are a child of God bought by the blood of Christ. There's a story in John chapter nine about a blind man who Jesus heals and after Jesus heals him, the religious leaders begin to ask this blind guy How in the world this happened? What happened to you? What changed? They ask him all these questions about Jesus, and the guy just doesn't really know all the answers. And eventually he looks at the religious leaders and says, look, here's what I do know. I know that I was blind, 
but now I see. That's what I can tell you for sure. We will never be able to argue someone into believing the Bible is the word of God, no matter how impressive our historical or archaeological arguments may be. Ultimately, for someone to believe the Bible is the word of God is an act of God's grace. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And there may come a time when someone walks up to us and asks, "Okay, maybe there is some good evidence. Maybe there is some good archaeology. But how can you really believe all this stuff? How can you really believe the miracles? How can you believe these things that simply just don't happen? At that point, we may have nowhere else to go but to respond like the blind man of John 9. Look, I'll never be able to answer all your questions. But I do know this. I was blind, but now I see. That may be the answer that we offer. Christians believe the Bible is the word of God. That we really can trust it. That we really do believe it. And that's why we go back to that passage we already read, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and we do affirm it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Christians believe what the Bible says about us. We believe what it says about God. We believe what it says about the past, and we believe what it says about the future. And we certainly believe what it says about the gospel. We believe that Jesus' body really was broken for us. That his blood really was shed for us. That we really were deserving of eternal punishment. But that he really did pay the penalty for our sins. We believe all of it. Now, a person out there may still be skeptical. They may still have lots of unanswered questions. But the best advice that I could give that person is not to research all the history, not to go and dig in the ground and try to find proof. Maybe the best advice we can give to a person like that is just to read it. Just open it up. Read it humbly. Read it openly. And people who do that may just be surprised at how powerful they find the Bible to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, it's something that we so often take for granted. Even the Christians who have been following your son for quite some time, we have dozens of Bibles sitting at home and they sit unopened and they gather dust and... and we just totally take for granted that we have such easy access to your revelation about yourself. A book that is unlike any other book in all of history. God, I pray that you would give us a deeper love for your word, a deeper trust of your word, a deeper dependence upon your word. A desire to look to your word for guidance, for comfort, for conviction. God, just to keep your word at the center of our hearts and center of our minds. Father, I pray that we would take seriously and that we would do well our responsibility to share the Bible with those who haven't heard it. 
I pray that we wouldn't be scared to address tough questions with people who do ask about the Bible, who are skeptical. God, I pray that as people look at our lives, they would possibly believe the legitimacy of the Christian faith, not because of historical arguments or archaeological digs, because they look at us and they see different people. People whose hearts and minds have changed because of your word, the way people don't usually just change on their own. And Father, I pray that if there are people out there, even in this room right now, who are skeptical of your word, God, that they would read it. Because we really do believe your word is powerful. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about this morning, if you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, anything that you'd like to pray for, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to answer questions, happy to pray with you. And we are again glad that you've been here, and we hope that you have a great Sunday as we leave this morning.